Father, we thank you that you are a God who is alive. You're a God who is at work. You're a God who is so much more than just principles and practices. You're a God who invites us to come and to know your very presence. And I do continue to pray, as I already have this morning, Lord, that this would be a moment where each and every one of us would encounter you afresh. Would you open our eyes to see you? Would you open our ears to hear your voice? Would you open our hearts just to the wonder and the incredible reality of the love that you lavish upon us? Would you transform us and make us more like you until we reflect the greatness of who you are? Lord, arise and let your light shine upon us this morning. For the glory of your name, King Jesus, we pray. Help us as we just turn to your scriptures, as we incline our ears and our hearts to what it is you're saying to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're finishing off this morning, Acts chapter 14, which is also bringing to a conclusion the first missionary journey of Paul. Paul and Barnabas, of course, have been traveling throughout a variety of cities and landscapes, and we've covered very briefly some different aspects of that journey. We've looked, if you like, at the motivation as they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the message, the the gospel, the good news that Paul proclaims. We have the first record of his sermon that he preached in his missionary journeys. We've looked in some way, in some manner, at the, the measure, this picture of a people who were obedient to the call of God, regardless of what opposition they came across. But I want to encourage us this morning at, you could call it the method, or really what I'm trying to convey is the heart. What was the heart behind Paul as he fulfilled the call of God upon his life? What was it that really drove him? What was it his passion as he set off upon these journeys? And this is something we'll see here, but we'll see continuing throughout his subsequent journeys as well. So let's read the scriptures and then reflect on a few things. Acts 14, I'm going to read from verse 21, and we're just picking up the flow. Hopefully there's enough there for you to grab the context if you haven't been following along. It says, when they, this is Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. And there's the first key word. So your talks, Luke often points out that there's many who believe. At times it's the whole city that comes and they believe to some degree. And we saw one instance, of course, as the city came out at one moment and proclaimed them to be gods. They'd done these incredible miracles and then... In the very next breath, they've left them for dead and stoned them outside the city gates. So this is not just a picture here of people who'd believed, but it said when they'd made many disciples, they then returned to Lystra. They'd just been there, Iconium, Antioch as well, three of the major ports that they'd visited, cities during this time. And this was their heart. I love this picture here, verse 22, chapter 14. It says, they strengthened the souls of the disciples. To strengthen, it literally means to, to provide a, a foundation, to, to uh, provide a framework for them, to, to give them a, a firm footing in 
their faith. It says to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they'd appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And of course, it says they then returned through some of the other places they'd been, proclaiming the gospel, and eventually end up back where they began in Antioch in Syria, proclaiming all that the Lord had done. So what, what is it that we see as this missionary trip comes to a close? They'd preached many places, they'd had many successes, they'd had uh, some opposition, of course, which was significant in various places as well. But as they bring this time to a conclusion, Paul's heart, it says he, he turns back to many of those places that he'd already been with one view and one perspective in mind. To strengthen, which means to establish them, to encourage them, to give courage to their heart, encourage them to remain in the faith and to establish them within churches, even uh, raising up and appointing prayerfully leaders within church communities and church congregations. As an aside, we will see that Paul's method in his missionary journeys was always to operate through the local church, to plant churches, to raise up leaders to plant churches. It's where worship happened. It's where discipleship happened. It's where fellowship happened. It's where evangelism happened. That was Paul's method and means. But the point for us this morning is there's this clear desire, this making of disciples, not just followers, not just believers. I think you see here really the care that Paul has for people. So it would be easy for us, I think, to read through, as I'm sure many of us have done, the missionary journeys, as we've uh, got this big picture of what Paul and Barnabas here, and it'll be Paul and Timothy and others later, as they travel on these mission trips to think, well, it was all about just proclaiming the gospel. It was all about, if you like, big stadium events, the crowds that came, the miracles that happened. Now, there was a lot of that, but this was not a fly-in, fly-out approach, as we might think of a modern mission trip. Paul would live there with these people in the midst of these communities. Sometimes it was months, sometimes it was years, and his heart was not just to proclaim the gospel in big events. His heart, his genuine desire seems to be motivated by the building of disciples, by accomplishing a people who were strengthened in their faith, who were encouraged in their faith, and who were planted in these communities of faith that Paul had established. In fact, I think if you sat down with Paul and you said, look, Paul, what, what is it? That really is your goal. Like, what, what is your dream as you head off on these missionary trips? What is it that, you know, you really look back and you think, this, this is the fruit that I was after? Was it the big events? Was it the moments that, you know, you really accomplished incredible things, miraculous signs, cities coming to hear the word of the Lord preached? I'm sure Paul would say, yeah, well, that's fine. That's part of it. That's great. Got no problem with it. I mean, he was the first to grab any opportunity that the Lord would give him, any open door to preach the gospel. But I'm sure he would say, look, if you, if you peel back all of that, here's really my heart, is that there would be disciples, that there would be a people who come to faith and they're strengthened in that faith 
And they're encouraged to remain in that faith despite any opposition. And they're planted in local churches with leaders raised up to shepherd their souls, encouraged, strengthened, and planted. You see, something that marked his life is he wasn't so caught up in the big picture that he forgot about the heart of the mission and the heart of the great commission that we've talked about so many times, not just the preaching, but the making of disciples. It's about the making of disciples. It's about seeing people strengthened, encouraged, and established in community with God and community with other believers. Can someone say amen to that so far? We're there. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. What, what did that look like for Paul? What does that look like for us? And how can we be a people who don't lose that heart of the mission as we walk our faith out? There's a guy, when it comes to discipleship and making of disciples, that I think he's got a lot of wonderful material. It's a passion of his life. A guy by the name of David Platt. Who, who's heard the name David Platt before? He's an American, only a few of us, American pastor. He pastored a mega church over there. He's uh, very passionate about missions and eventually moved from his role of pastoring to be full-time in the mission space. But he writes a lot. He encourages people a lot in this area of making disciples. And he shares this story about the first time that he went to Cuba. He gets to travel to a lot of different places around the world. And he said Cuba in particular really surprised him because as he arrived there, one thing that struck him is there was no overt presence of churches. I mean, they're a communist, have been a communist society for some time where uh, the preaching of the gospel, the establishment of churches was, if it wasn't illegal, was certainly not allowed to thrive and prosper. So he said, you walk through the seats, there was no overt presence of the gospel, no big chapels and cathedrals, no outward evidence of a functioning church. And yet, as you delve beneath the surface, he was introduced to this one particular pastor who said, we'd love to show you what the Lord's doing in Cuba. And he said, this guy was just a, a firebrand, like he was passionate for the gospel. In fact, he'd been preaching, he'd been arrested a few times for what he was doing. And there's one particular account where he was brought before the, the, uh, the court and they said, you know, you're forbidden to preach the gospel. And he pulled out this rock, a large rock, and he sat it on the bench beside him. And he said, if you forbid me to preach the gospel, then this rock is going to preach and proclaim the gospel. And as the story goes, they thought he was crazy and they released him. Not suggesting we try that strategy. But he was this passionate, passionate guy for the Lord and, and preaching the gospel. And he said, this guy would introduce him. And like a lot of these places where you know, the gospel is forbidden, he said, I'd, I'd never seen anything like it in the flesh. And this guy introduced him to this large um, underground house church network, churches of 60, 100, sometimes a few hundred people. And he said the thing that struck him was in, in the church, every church he went to, they said, well, this is a church of 100 people, but they've already planted another 100 churches. And then in this church, you know, that, that church has already planted another 60 and 30 and so on and so on. And he said literally there was this, this network of, of thousands, if not tens of thousands of churches that had been planted all the way through Cuba. And so he sat down with this guy and he said, you've got to tell me what your secret is. Like, I'm a mega pastor from America. We've got the 
the resources and the money, but we're not doing anything like you are doing over here and certainly not having anything like the success that you're having. He said, what is the key? What is it that you guys have discovered is the key? We love the key, don't we? We always want the, the strategy, want the formula. What is it? What is it that I can do? Just the, the little list of things I can tick off to accomplish my intended aim. And he said this. He said, it's really simple. Write it down. This is the guy from Cuba, the Cuban pastor. He said, this is what we do. We make disciples. And David Platt said, make disciples. I'll write that down. Make disciples. He said, that's it? That's all you do? He said, yeah. We just love God and we love people. And, and it's, it's literally that simple. And it's not just the, the pastors. It's everybody in the church community that have this passion and this recognition that that's really the heart of what it's all about, is just to love him and to love other people around us. And the thing for David Platt is he shares this story that struck him. He says, here I am as a, a wealthy American pastor, pastoring a mega church, and we have all of the programs, we have all of the systems, we have all of the the processes that we could ever possibly use, the campuses, the buildings, the money, the giving, you name it, we have it. And yet sometimes we become so reliant on the system that we forget the substance. So reliant upon the methods and the means that we forget and lose sight of the mission, which is really simple just to love God and to love people. He said, that's, that's it. They have nothing in terms of the, the modern church planting wisdom and the resources that the Western world have, but they have something that is so much more important that has seen incredible influence and the spread of the gospel in their area. They have the simplicity of that truth, grabbing hold of just loving God and loving one another. Grab your Bibles. I want to go to one more passage of Scripture. I want to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 and look at a parable that most of us, I think, will be very familiar with, but draw one particular thing out that is important for us to grab a hold of and grasp as we talk about, just grab a hold of this whole picture of making disciples of a, a missionary, a man who, whose heart was for people and grabbing a hold of the heart of the gospel that he proclaimed and preached. Luke chapter 10 tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'm going to quickly move through here just to get the gist because I'm sure most of it's familiar. But the context here before we look at the parable itself, in verse 25, it says a lawyer. Now a lawyer in those days, that's literally talking about someone who is an expert in the law, the law of God. He knows the law. He stands up to put Jesus to the test. He says, teacher referring to Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what, what is it that's written in the law? You know the, the law. How do you read the law? And this lawyer, this expert of the law, he says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But of course, the expert in the lawyer, the lawyer continues. And this is a very interesting phrase here. It's important, I believe, to exactly why Jesus tells the parable that he does. It says, but he being the expert of the law, desiring to justify himself. So he knows the law, and his intent in asking this next question 
is to make sure he's doing okay, to justify himself externally. He says, well, who is my neighbor? He's thinking, well, you know, I know the law. I know how it works. I'm sure that I am one of those who are fulfilling the requirements of the law to the t- I'm, I'm okay. Seeking to, to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies, of course, with this very well-known famous story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, first of all, a priest is going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Now, before we get too critical of the priest, there was, of course, Levitical, legal, according to the law, requirements that a priest who presumably was from Jerusalem, was on a God mission, fulfilling some sort of religious duty. He's not just a priest, he's a Jerusalem priest, the head of the priesthood. And there was a requirement for them if they saw a a dead body to avoid it. That was actually part of the law, that you you cannot become ceremonially unclean. So it could well be that the expert of the law was hearing this story thinking, oh, well, good, you know, the priest is doing the right thing. He's doing what what he should have done. He's passing by just in case this guy happens to be dead. He doesn't want to get defiled, so he's crossing over and proceeding on his journey. So so likewise, a a Levite, so the priest, the Levites, of course, were part of the the legal uh, Jewish religious system also. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side as well. Good, okay, a Levite, fair enough. He's fulfilling the technicalities of the law. Now, verse 33, but it says, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, took care of all of his debts. And then, of course, Jesus concludes in verse 36 and says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Of course, The lawyer responds and says, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, it's a a wonderful story. It is. And I think often we interpret that as Jesus saying, well, we need to look after those people around us who are different than us and show care as the Samaritan did, who, of course, was someone who normally wouldn't associate with this Jewish man who had run into trouble. And yes, that is certainly a core element of this story. But I would suggest to us that there is a bigger picture here. And it's a bigger picture that goes to the heart of the gospel. Something that I want to draw our attention to this morning. See, there is this incredible irony in the story. And it's no coincidence that Jesus has told two people, used two people in the story both who are experts of the law, as is the lawyer who has come to question Jesus and come to justify himself. And the irony is simply this, that the very thing, the the law that was supposed to point them to God and his will and his purpose had become the very thing that had kept them from God and his will. See, he could have used any different people. But Jesus is saying to this lawyer, he's saying, just like you, these are people who know the law, they practice the law, they love the law, and yet they've used the law only as means to justify themselves. Remember this, the lawyer had rightly answered. Jesus commended him and said, 
The, the sum of the law is to love. It's to love God and to love others. You've answered correctly. The heart of it is love. And yet he shows a story here where the only love shown by the experts of the law is what? It's a love of, of their own self-justified righteousness. It's a love of themselves. Arguably, you could say that's no love at all. It's just selfishness. All they could see was the problems to be avoided. And so this is, I believe, the reason and the heart behind why Jesus told this story. It's simply this. He's, he's saying to this lawyer who knows the law and uses it to justify himself, what good is the law if you've forgotten love? What good is all the performance and the adherence of the law if you've lost sight of the purpose? What good is your religion if there is no relationship? What good is a system that has lost its substance? Can you see the issue? The center of the gospel is love. And so as Jesus says, go and do likely, he's saying, go back to the drawing board. You're following the law, you're following the system, but you're completely missing the point. It's just a means that you're using to justify yourself. Let's apply this to us. You see, in many ways, I would suggest to us we've become a world of Pharisees. We might not use that particular term. But there is this inherent need, a human need to justify ourselves, to feel okay about our personal position. You know, you can't turn on the news. I, I try to turn it on as little as possible, but I don't want to be completely removed from the things going on around. But this week, like so many other weeks, there's this constant need for people to justify, to find someone to blame. It's become our mission to find the problems and lay them at the feet of someone else. Yeah, it's the government's fault. It's it's regulations fault, it's the people doing the wrong things fault, it's whoever we might believe to be at fault, avoiding any sense of personal responsibility. And the truth is when self-justification becomes our motivation, then our mission becomes to elevate ourselves. And it's this cycle that's bred of blame, resistance, opposition, and tearing down. Now, into that mix comes the glory of the gospel. And if ever there was a man who walked this planet who had the right to come down and point out faults and issues, it was the perfect man, the God-man. It was Jesus. And yet we read that he came not to condemn. He didn't come to have a conversation about us with all the issues, to point the finger, to find someone to blame. Let me tell you, how much you've messed this whole thing up. He saw the problems not as an opportunity for punishment, but as a moment for redemption. Jesus stretched forth his hands. So this is the moment for love. To show love. The last thing the world needs is more Pharisees, but the one thing that our world needs is in desperate need of, is Jesus. And a people who would grab a heart of this glorious gospel that comes not to point the finger and blame, and I think so many of us with the stuff that comes around us, we're so good at jumping on the keyboard, 
expressing some views, justifying ourselves. I'm okay. This is all that group's fault. This is the problems. In fact, if you take a moment this week and sit down with someone, I've done this a few times, and, and just say to them, you know, what, what do you think are some of the problems that we're facing in our world today? Well, be prepared for a long conversation. You're not getting out of that one quickly. Like, there is more than enough problems around, and most of us are very aware of the problems. What I want to remind us of is the solution. This reality of a God who comes to love and instructs us to love him and to love others. I want to finish just with one practical example of this, which is an example I've used before, but I still think it's one of the most wonderful pictures of how we can respond to some of the issues that are around us, some of, some of the stuff, but in a way that is not about just resisting issues and finding problems, but it's about bringing the redemption of Christ into broken situations around us. It's a testimony of a, a lady, her name is Rosaria Butterfield. In fact, I mentioned this book a few years ago, and I know the women did it in some of their, their book clubs and covered it, but it's one of the most wonderful, not only testimonies, but just pictures of what it means to be practically a gospel-centered, loving community, a people who don't get caught up just in the system and this pattern of self-justification, but we know what it is truly to love others. Now, Rosaria's journey to Christ was an interesting one. In fact, she was an English professor university. Her academic specialty was in a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies, and she was in a committed lesbian relationship herself. In fact, she wrote the legislation that prepared the way for gay marriage in America. She was a hard and fast advocate of LGBTQI plus movement. It was in the late 90s when Rosari was researching to write a book and, and get it. This was her book, The e Evils and Dangers of the Religious Right. That was going to be the title of her book. And she wrote an article expressing her views, which elicited an interesting response from a local pastor by the name of Ken Smith. Surprised her because she was very used to hate mail. And let's be honest, how many Christians do we know? No one in this room, of course, but would see an article written by that sort of person and would be like, here we go, line it up. We're going to bring this one home. And yet... This response from this pastor surprised her. She said, I was used to hate mail and fan mail, but this was very different. This was an expression of respect and love with an offer of a meal. So she took up this offer of a meal. She said, the meals became weekly, and as each meal would finish, the Bible would come out. Though she despised everything written in it, she read it cover to cover three or four times, only to prove it wrong. But it was on the third or fourth pass that rather than proving it wrong... It began to prove her wrong. She encountered the author of the book and surrendered her life to Christ. Now, 20 years later, she married eventually a Lutheran pastor. They had four kids together. And she writes this book, which I just think is a wonderful title, and it's a wonderful book. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in a Post-Christian World. 
And she talks about how in her own home this has played out. And every night she invites people over, just ordinary people. In fact, she shares the journey of how they found their house. And most of us would, would uh, you know, we look for the nice neighbourhood, we look for the, the nice house, and we think, well, is there good schools for the kids? Is there, you know, is it safe? They took a very different approach. They said, Lord, would you lead us to just the darkest corner of a suburb in our local neighbourhood? And they found it. It was right next to a drug a drug den next door, and they were like, that's the one the Lord's leading us to. And that became their mission field. They invite people in, it says, and every night of the week, I'm not saying that all of us can do this sustainably, every night of the week, she said, people come in from the neighbourhood and as the plates clear away, the Bibles and coffee are passed down, not so the conversation dies, but so it deepens and brings Jesus into the midst. Now, this, this is, as I said, one practical example. This is the challenge and the emphasis that she puts in her book. Her question is this, what if the most powerful tool in the proclamation of the gospel and the renewal of your neighbourhood was your house key? Interesting thought, isn't it? What, what does it take? What does it take for us to be missionaries? This is really the point I'm getting at. We look at someone like Paul, we think, well, I could never do that. You know, like he's preaching the crowds and he's doing these miracles and like you, you've got to be You've got to be someone like the Apostle Paul. The truth is, it's far more simple than sometimes we make it. You know, all it takes is something that each and every one of us have, and it's just a house key. Just a house key. A house key. What if the house key was the most important evangelical tool that you will ever own? Radical, ordinary hospitality. Radical because it has the eternal power to point people to Jesus Ordinary, because all that is required is a house key. Can we get the band to come back up? But I want to leave you with these thoughts. When was the last time that we reached out to someone the complete opposite to us? When was the last time, rather than walking by on the the field and perhaps justifying ourselves, well, no, no, they're, they're different than me and I've got my own systems We step outside our comfort zone and we loved someone and expressed our love in a practical way, maybe not necessarily bandaging them and putting them on a donkey and paying for their wounds. What about even just the offer of a a coffee, offer of a meal? Why don't you come over? Let's talk through some things. And Think about this in a bigger picture. What if as believers we took all the passion that so often we put into finding systems and methods of self-justification so that we'd feel all right about ourselves, so that our churches would seem okay because we've got all the, the programs and all the systems put in place. And instead, we put all of those efforts into one simple cause, and that's loving people well. See, I don't want us to miss in the midst of the mission the beating heart it's what Christ called us to do he said go into all the world preach the glory of the gospel the work of God through Christ Jesus but let's not miss the second part he said and make disciples Disciples who are encouraged, 
who are strengthened, who are planted in community. And that can be as simple as a conversation, an invitation. But what I really want to focus on this morning is bringing us back to that place. Simplicity. As Christ said to the the teacher of the law, what does it boil down to? What, what What is it really all about? Peel back all the the stuff and what's it really all about? As Jesus says to him, it's just about this. It's about loving him. Loving him with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength. And from that place of just recognizing and receiving and living in his love, there is a natural outflow. second commandment is like it because you can't do one without the other. It's just to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor as yourself. That outflow of love. The Apostle Paul put it this way. 1 Corinthians, he says, I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, I have nothing, I am nothing, and I gain nothing. That's the center of our faith, not a path to self-justification. It's a path to the radical reality of encountering His love and then giving that away to others. Can we stand? going to respond as we finish this morning with a a song of worship. Just encourage you to open up your hearts to the Lord. Just be asking Him, Lord, is there there anything that you're saying to us this morning? Is there anything that you're saying to me personally this morning? Any ways that have drawn us from that reality of His love, from the mission of His love. Any systems of self-justification that need recalibration. Any ways in which we just know we've wandered from that simple reality and truth and allow him to stir our hearts afresh both with his love for us but then with that passionate draw and call to be a people who would love others so let's just sing together and then we'll see what the Lord wants to do this morning